podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, April 13th. The youth movement continues across the ATP and WTA tours as it was next-gen players and next-next-gen players finding success in our two tour-level events in Monte Carlo and Charleston. Those two tournaments are going to be the focus of today's podcast. I want to recap all of Tuesday's matches, talk about our most notable performers, also want to talk briefly about some of the challenger action we've seen already unfold this week at our three challenger events. I'll save the big deep dive for the Great Shot podcast scheduled later in the week with David Gertler, but there have been some notable results through the first two days that I just, I feel like I have to comment on, so I'm going to throw them into the podcast. I also have a couple of rants I'd like to get off of my chest. There was a big movement today, a big, I suppose, conversation on tennis Twitter. There was a Hubie Hercats press conference that went wrong. I want to address that. I want to offer a stat of the day. That's a new thing. I'm sort of stealing it from Jeff Sackman. I'm not going to lie. His Deciding Points podcast, that three-minute start to the day, uh, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to in the tennis world. I know that's a free plug right there, but obviously Jeff's a friend of the show. But I've got a stat for all of you listeners I think you're going to enjoy. I'm going to start working those in to any of the solo mini-break podcasts that I do. But that's our agenda for today's show. Of course, the reason I'm able to do this day in, day out is because of the support I get from all of you fantastic listeners, from our Patreon family, and of course, from our friends at Midwest Sports. You guys know the deal. Go to MidwestSports.com, use that promo code CR15 to get all of the best equipment in the game at all of the best prices. You use that promo code. Not only will you let them know we sent you there, but you'll get 15% off your order free. Two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, MidwestSports.com. The promo code is CR15. With that in mind, I feel like that's an intro on the briefer side. We can get right into the action we saw unfold on Tuesday. Unfortunately, we have to start with some news that came from an off-the-court notable, I suppose, incident. Daniil Medvedev, the number two seed in Monte Carlo, someone who I talked about yesterday as one of the players I was most uh, focused on, uh, given his relatively still unknown skill set, unknown ceiling, I suppose, on clay courts in ATP level matches. Uh, Unfortunately, Daniil Medvedev tested positive for COVID, and it's a stark reminder that we are still playing this season amidst a pandemic. And look, you know, vaccinations here in the United States uh, happen to become more available and pretty much available for anyone, regardless of what state you live in, what age you are. Um, but that's not the case everywhere else in the world. And there's this, you know, this pandemic is not going anywhere. It brings to mind the bubble conditions in Monte Carlo, brings to the fact Daniil Medvedev hit with both Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal in the days leading up to his positive test. These are all scary things. These are all things we have to think about. Obviously, God forbid, we see multiple players test positive. We see, you know, cases spike across the tour. But of course, tennis is an intimate sport. And while I'm phenomenally thrilled to see more fans at events to really feel like we are getting the sport back to uh, the day-to-day normalcy we all experienced prior to COVID, COVID's emergence, uh, this is a reminder that precautions have to be taken, that it's better safe than sorry, that yeah, you know, players, media people, all of us are going to complain about the conditions of pandemic-held events, 
But that's the necessity. Uh, you know, those conditions, those uh, regulations that are put in place, that's what needs to happen for us to get to enjoy our sports. So, unfortunately, that was a stark reminder to start the day. Medvedev uh, withdrawn from the event. He said, it's a big disappointment not to play in Monte Carlo. My focus is now on recovery, and I look forward to getting back on tour as soon and as safely as possible. He's been moved into isolation and continues to be monitored by the tournament physician and ATP medical team. He has been replaced in the single second round following a first round bye and has been withdrawn from the doubles competition. Now, obviously, it's a disappointment. We're not going to get to see him compete in Monte Carlo, but more than anything else, we are hoping he has a safe and speedy recovery With that in mind, let's talk about the action we saw unfold on Tuesday, and it was primarily round of 64 matches, but I actually want to start, and my big deep dive today is a round of 32 result we saw unfold in Monte Carlo, and that's number four seed Stefano Tsitsipas, uh, knocking off Aslan Karatsev 6-3-6-4. Now, Patreon subscribers at Cracked Rackets will know this was my match of the day, and we apologize. I screwed up reading the schedule. I thought the match was going to be late. Later in the day, it ended up being one of the actual early matches on the Monte Carlo schedule. But look, Tsitsipas dominated Karatsev, and Karatsev had been damn good on clay over the past 52 weeks. He was 18-2. and two. He had two challenger titles, an additional challenger final. He looked great in his round of 64 victory uh, that he had in his first match. I believe that was a victory he earned. Uh, I want to say, who did he knock off? Oh, my God, all these matches now blend together. I apologize, folks. I'm having a brain fart here. It was Lorenzo Musetti, the talented young Italian that Karatsev knocked off in straight sets, and Musetti has had plenty of success himself, made a deep run last week at the ATP level, has won a challenger on clay, has had multiple successes, you know, over 40-plus wins in his last 52 weeks of competition, and Karatsev beat him comfortably, and again, we saw his challenger success at the hard courts, uh, on the hard courts translate to the ATP level to start the season, and given his game's he was always on his front foot, always playing attacking tennis. That's a game style that's going to translate well to clay. But you know who also plays attacking front foot tennis and always keeps the opponent scrambling, which is so difficult to do on a clay court? Stefano Tsitsipas, who also has his biggest weakness neutralized when playing on a clay court. Allow me to explain. You look for Stefano Tsitsipas, who today, 6-3-6-4 victory over Aslan Karatsev. You want to get into the stats of that match for Tsitsipas. Wasn't broken throughout the the day. Saved all four break points he faced, converted two of his five break point chances, only made 56% of his first serves, but won 74% of his first serve points, 63% of his second serve points. Karatsev made less than 50% of his first serves and, and Tsitsipas capitalized, winning 14 of the 27 Karatsev's second serve points. That's the key. The return of serve is the one still weakness. It's not a glaring weakness, but it is a weakness for Stefano Tsitsipas. In particular, obviously, that one-handed backhand return of serve. When you can hit heavy kick, heavy pace into that wing, he often either, A, will just miss that return, or B, hit a a ball short in the court, give his opponent an attackable first shot in the rally, and you look for Tsitsipas, who has been so successful in his last 52 weeks, 34-14 and overall. That's a 71 
51% win percentage. That's not the elite of the elite, but that's a top 10 player right there, folks. And you look for him on clay in particular. He's 10-3. and three. He lost a three-set match to Yannick Sinner, but then made uh, last year in his first clay court match. Followed that up, though, by making the final in Hamburg. Beats Christian Guerin. Loses to Rublev in three sets. But he follows that up by making the semifinals in Roland Garros. Beats Rublev in straight sets in the quarters. Also beat Dimitrov, beat Munar, a win that is certainly appreciated in value before losing in five to Djokovic. You look for Tsitsipas in his career. He's won 63% of his career hard court matches, 72% of his career clay court matches. Both of those sample sizes over 120 total matches. You want to look at the ATP level specifically. Tsitsipas 104 and 58. That's a 64% win percentage on hard courts. That's pretty damn good. But he's 38 and 16, a 70% win percentage on clay courts. You look at that 38 and 16 record, you want to go even more granular than that against top 50 opponents. Tsitsipas 20 and 11 on clay courts against top 20 opponents. He's 9 and 9 against top 10 opponents. He's 4 and 7 against top 5 opponents. 2 and 4. Why has he had all of that success? It's simple. It's the fact that on clay courts, uh, his biggest weakness, that backhand return of serve, is neutralized. Just look at the numbers, and I'm going to keep it focused in the ATP level matches, because when you've played over 50 ATP level matches, in my opinion, that's a big enough sample size. You know, he makes about the same percentage of first serves. He's had about 62% of his first serves in. His first serve win percentage does drop on clay courts, and of course, it's more difficult to hit a plus one ball. It's more difficult to hit through a court to serve and volley to just take the open space available to you because, uh, again, it's a clay court. The, the key is to be unpredictable, and it's it's just harder to hit your serve through the court. Anyways, all that is to say uh, he's got a 77% win percentage on first serve points, 72% win percentage on, uh, on uh, 77 on hard courts, 72 on clay. It's his splits on hard courts, first serve win percentage, second serve win percentage, hold percentage. He goes 77, 55, 87 on hard courts, 72, 54, 83 on clay courts. So, you know, about a 3% drop off in the effectiveness of his serve. Well, you look at his return percentages. He His return points won just in total. He wins 35% of his total return points on hard courts, 39.2% of his return points on clay. His break percentage on hard courts, 18.6%. Where would that rank on the tennis abstract ATP stats leaderboard in break percentage? 18.6 would rank 44th out of the top 50 players. You look for him on clay courts for Stefano Tsitsipas. That break percentage jumps all the way up to 26.5%. 26.5% would put him amongst the top 20 players in terms of break percentage in the top 50 of the ATP rankings. You know, that that whole percentage, while it dropped 3%, he's still above 82. That number would have him as a top 20 server, still honestly inside the top 15 as well. And he would be one of only five players to rank inside both the top 15 of of serving and returning on clay courts. Speaks to how special he is on the surface. His game just works. He moves the ball so 
well around the court. He is always playing on his front foot. He's looking to attack, take the ball early, force you to change directions, make a split-second decision, which again, because of how difficult it is to find your footing on clay courts, is that much more difficult to do as his opponents. You know, his first serve percentage, his first serve win percentage has actually continued to improve uh, as he's played more and more clay court matches. So why it's lower than the hard court matches, he's just played a larger sample size of hard court matches as he's gotten better in his career. I don't think his first serve really does suffer. I think that's something where the numbers are a little bit skewed by the, the results early in his career. But the returning is real. Like those numbers, I, I do think they are more realistic. And in particular, it's his return numbers of late. They've been spectacular. I talk about him 10-3 and three on clay in his last 52. His break percentage has been a 28%. That's higher than it is in his career. His win percentage on the first serve has been 75%. That's higher than it is for his career on clay. He's getting better at all of these things on clay courts, and he's already been a damn good clay court player this early in his career. So for Stefano Tsitsipas, I know it's you know not a hot take. He's what, number five in the world right now? If he wins the French Open, it really shouldn't shock anyone. If this is the year Nadal drops off and it becomes a free-for-all, Stefano Tsitsipas is going to be a part of that free-for-all. He looks outstanding in his first match of the year. Again, just took it to Karatsev, forced Karatsev to be on his back foot, which is really difficult to force Karatsev to do, particularly given how big Karatsev hits the serve and his plus one ball. You know, he was fine being six, seven feet behind the baseline on the return of serve and swinging through that backhand to get the point to neutral against Karatsev. It's a great opening start for Stefano Tsitsipas. Straight sets, he advances to the round of 16. That's going to be my one deep dive from Monte Carlo because if I did that for every player, this podcast would go for six hours. There were a ton of other fantastic results. Your only other round of 32 match featured an upset as Alejandro Davidovich Vokina knocked off Matteo Berrettini, uh, 7 5 6 3. You know, Berrettini hasn't played that much tennis, wasn't a guy who traveled to Miami. I think he's going to get better and better as this clay court season progresses. But, you know, Davidovich Vokina now. A win over Demon Hour, a win over Berrettini. He's just a fantastic athlete. His game just works. He's able to read, react. He's able to change direction, go down the line, keep you off your back uh, on your back foot. He made enough returns, got those returns low on the body of Matteo Berrettini to not allow him to just dictate at will. It was a fantastic performance for Davidovich Fokina. Not the best from Berrettini. You look at the numbers from the match in terms of the serving stats for Berrettini. Only made 54% of his first serves. Only won 56% of his first serve points. Just never really found his rhythm in this match. But credit to Davidovich Fokina. His serving splits made 78% of his first serves. 78% of his first serve points he won. Won 54% of his second serves. Only broken once. That will get the job done done. In terms of your round of 64 matches, no seeds upset on the day. Uh, Bautista Agut straight set victory over Fritz. Fritz did have the chance to serve for that second set, but I mean, man, Bautista Gut, just such a tough out. That's another one. He's not going to lose before round of 16's quarterfinals, folks. He, it's going to take a special performance to beat him. That's how well he's playing right now. That's how locked in he is physically. Ditto for Crano Busta. Follows up a title in Marbella. Straight set win over Travaglia. Hubi Hercats. Three set win for him to kick off his clay court season over Thomas Fabiano. I know it wasn't the prettiest, but... 
anytime you follow up your first title at a Masters 1000 event, the pressure that you're going to feel on your shoulders just to get a victory, that's huge for Hoobie, who, again, hasn't played that many ATP-level clay court matches in his career, but has the skill set to have, you know, to have success on the dirt. So one to monitor, as always. Dimitrov, strong start for him. Straight set victory over Jan Leonard Struff. Ditto for Fabio Fognini, who, you know, just hit Miomir Kesmenovic off the court, was so much more patient in this match than he was last week when I believe he lost first round to Halmi Munar, just, you know, was willing to play and suffer those 15-20 ball rallies. And then ultimately Kesmenovic didn't have the big weapon, and so Fonini was able to play big, be the aggressor. Fonini's defending championship points. He won this event in 2019, and it wasn't played last year, so he's feeling a little pressure, but it's a great start to his title defensive campaign. Straight set win over Kasmanovic. In terms of your other results we have seen on the, or excuse me, we saw on the day, straight set wins for Chechenato over Kopfer, Delbanis over Manorino, Hachinov over Laszlo Jure, Lucas Puy over Guido Pea, Lorenzo Sinego, great follow-up for him for his title last week in Cagliari, straight set wins over Fucevic, uh, Yannick Sinner kicks off his campaign, and again, everything I said about Hercats applies for Sinner, straight set win over Ramos Vinolas, Kasper Ruud, he played checkers, Holger Rune, unfortunately, or he played chess, whichever one's the more advanced, I think chess is the more advanced. So Rude was playing chess. Holger Rune was playing checkers. 6-2-6-1 win for Rude, who I'm sure he was like, I lost to Alcaraz last week. I am not losing to another one of these youngsters. Uh, good bounce back for him. He's someone, again, you circle absolutely uh, to have a big clay court season. In terms of the rest of your winners, they were all three-set results. Uh, you had Salvatore Caruso, three-set win over Wildcard, Lucas Caterina, Jeremy Chardy, 7-5 in the third, over Sasha Bublik, Dan Evans, fifth clay court win of his career at the ATP level. He knocks off the deuce, 6-2 in the third. You also had a win for Basilishvili, uh, excuse me, for Karanovic, 6-1-2 love over Basilishvili, who retires in that second set. And then Alexi Poparin, who... You know, big serve, big forehand. You think that's a guy who's going to have success on hard courts. Former junior French Open champion. So just keep an eye on the qualifier. 7-6 in the third victory over Pablo Andohar to advance to the round of 32. Those were your Tuesday matches in terms of what we have on store on Wednesday. Your top seeds in action across the board. Novak Djokovic begins his campaign in the highlight match of the day taking on Yannick Sinner. Could I do 10 minutes on this match? I could probably do 15 to see how, you know, Djokovic hasn't played tennis since the Australian Open, and he's taken on a guy in Yannick Sinner who there's no patience for Yannick Sinner. He takes it to you from ball one of the match, and, you know, Djokovic is a guy who likes to play with his food. Djokovic is a guy who will break and go up to love and then go down 4-2 in the first set and then come back and take it 6-4. Well, if he messes around with Sinner, Sinner's not going to leave the door open for him, and, you know, Djokovic is a little bit older than he used to be. Will his movement still be as pristine as it can be on the clay? Obviously, he scrapped and clawed his way to the French Open final last year, but 
you know, Sinner's got the weapons to put Djokovic on his back foot and first clay court match. It's a tough ask for Novak Djokovic, especially against an in-form Yannick Sinner. Still, this is, a, you know, this is the sort of match Novak Djokovic gets up for. So I'm expecting a high quality of tennis, expecting Djokovic to win, but I also think that match goes three sets. So give me the over in that one, but give me Djokovic to advance you know, Rafa's going to kick off his campaign against Federico Delbonis, the lefty Delbonis. Such a tough court on the clay, uh, such a tough out on the clay courts. He'll make that match physical, but so you, no one makes a match physical on clay like Rafael Nadal. He's the unequivocal favorite. For uh, for Sasha Zverev, you know, he takes on an inform Lorenzo Sinego, and as Zverev's going to play around, Sinego's going to hit the big forehand and mix in the drop shots, hit the big serves, take it to Zverev, move forward, force Zverev to be on his back foot. But Zverev on clay might be the most, uh, I suppose, intimidating and potentially uh, lethal form of Alex Zverev in terms of a tennis player. Again, just talking about purely the tennis when it comes to him. That's a fun match. Andre Rublev, also sneakily, former junior French Open champion, and we saw him Hamburg champion, French Open cha- uh, quarterfinalist last year. He kicks off his campaign against Caruso. In terms of the other matches of the day, if I break them all down again, we'll be here for an hour, which I'm down with. Maybe you're all down with as well. So you know what? I'll go patiently. Talk a little bit, but with some, I suppose, uh, with a purpose, I'm going to talk about these matches. Fonini Thompson, physical tennis. Fonini's got the biggest weapon, essentially a rerun of his first round. Schwartzman, Rude, take the over two hours. That match is going to get physical. Hercats, Dan Evans, you want slices, you want creativity, guys moving forward, playing some fun, non-traditional clay court tennis, that's the match for you. Dimitrov, Chardy, Chardy's going to hit big forehands to the Dimitrov backhand. Dimitrov, sneaky good athlete on clay, but we'll see how much Chardy has left in the tank after a tough three-set match against Bublik. Chechenato has Gofen on upset to alert tomorrow. With Chechenato, how big that forehand is, it explodes through the court. He has additional time to swing through his one-handed backhand. If Gofen's ball isn't hitting through these courts as it wasn't at times against Chilich, Chechenato can take it to him. So that's a sneaky match. Tommy Paul versus Roberto Ogut is the best match that's not going to be on center court tomorrow. That's just two athletes. Going to be physical tennis. Tommy Paul, former junior French Open champion, since I'm pointing that out right now about people. You've also got Milman Green. Milman's going to force Garen to work, but Garen's got the biggest weapons on the court. He should win that match. I think Paparin beats Luca Pui tomorrow, but, you know, again, that's a fun one. Kareno Busta Hachinov should get physical. We'll see how much Kareno Busta has left in the tank. That's a match you lean Hachinov, given how much tennis Kareno Busta's played, excuse me, these past seven days. Kranovich, Juan Ignacio Landero, your final singles match of the day. But I should point out, you've also got the Tsitsipas in doubles actions. Dimitrov Gofen in doubles action. Mahut Erber in doubles action. Hachinov Rublev in doubles action. So just from top to bottom, going to be a fantastic day of tennis in Monte Carlo. Let's move on now and talk about the action we saw unfold in Charleston. Young players, the next next gen, they continue to rise in the women's game. And I've made this uh, point before, but you look at the players under the age of 21 right now within the top 150 of the WTA rankings. Bianca Andreescu, Grand Slam champion. Iga Svantec. Grand Slam champion. Yastremska has been a top 25 player. Coco Goff, 17 years old. She's number 35 in the world. Amanda Nisimova, Grand 
Grand Slam semifinalist. She's top 40 in the world. Ann Lee, one of the rising stars of the past, you know, 52 weeks of play. She's top 75. Layla Fernandez, 18-year-old former junior French Open champion. She's number 72 in the world. You've got Marta Castillo, Kaya Yuvan, uh, you know, Clara Tawson, who won a WTA title earlier this year. Maria Camilla Osorio-Serrano, who we'll talk about momentarily. You know, they've got, uh, I believe right now, 18 women under the age of 21 inside the top 150 of the rankings. Uh, it speaks to the depth and the talent of these young rising stars in the women's game. And guess what? We're going to get to add another player to that list. The highest ranked player, I believe now, under the age of 16. Oh, wait. Is she not the highest ranked player under the age of 16 despite this result here in Charleston this week? No, she is. Okay, good. Up to number 414 in the world. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about Linda uh, Fruvertova, a name we're all going to have to learn to pronounce as Fruvertova, a winner in her match today in Charleston, earns her first WTA-level win with a 6-2, all retirement victory over number 4 seed Alizé Cornet in a 2-hour, 43-hour slugfest that can only be described as a physical battle of tennis now for Fruvertova. I mean, you look for those who don't know about her. She's, you know, currently the number 13 junior in the world, been ranked as high as number 10 in the world. Now, she's never made a quarterfinal of a junior slam, but she's made a bunch of grade one finals, won a bunch of high ITF level junior titles. She's 24-9 in her junior career, a 74% win percent win percentage on clay, 25-8, a 76% win percentage on hard courts. She's also had a a bunch of success over the past few weeks at the ITF level. You look for Fruvertova now, 18-8 and eight in her last 52 weeks. That includes runs to four different uh, ITF level finals at the professional circuit. Now, she lost two of them in November and January, but she's won her last two, won them in the first two weeks of February. She went down and played qualifying in Miami, was a three-set loss for the 15-year-old wildcard, Tustoyanovich. But you look for her, you watch her play, I mean, for a 15-year-old, her movement on the green clay of Charleston was just out of this world. She tracked down everything Cornet threw at her, and Cornet was locked in on attacking the Fruvertova forehand. I don't know why. I mean, the backswing's a little bit big, but, like, Fruvertova handled her pace well. She moved that ball around the court so well. Whenever she got the opportunity to swing through a backhand, she absolutely did. And you look at the stats in this match, you know, neither player served particularly effectively in this match in total. You know, for, uh, I believe it was Alizé Cornet, she was broken 10 times, faced 20 break points. For Fruvertova, she was broken uh, 8 times, faced 12 break points. Uh, you look in the match for Rotova made 70% of her first serves, which is a good number to make considering she's 15 years old. She knows that serve's not the biggest weapon for her. You just got to get that first serve in, place it well, start the point at neutral because she is that physically gifted. She can move the ball around that well. I will say for Fruvertova, she doesn't have the weapon like 
a Clara Tawson who you watch for two seconds and you're like, oh my God, she's in the elite power tennis field. Like she can absolutely hit the cover off of a ball. That's not Fruvertova, but she moves the ball around the court and she's as fluid. It, it reminds you of Coco Golf. It's just like how easy she makes everything look around the court, how high percentage all the choices she's making around the court. And it's crazy, by the way, she's born in Freaking 2005. I'm 10 years old at that point. Like, I know some of you are probably old, we're older than that, but it's crazy to think. Like, we're already at the point that someone born in 2005 can have professional level success, and deservedly so. I just, the way she moved, uh, you know, Corne, the way she just handled the physicality Corne was trying to impose, and she didn't blink. She stood with her shot for shot. She was willing to suffer 15, 20, 25 ball rallies, but then did take the opportunities to change direction in the rally, take the ball big cross court, move forward when the opportunity presented itself. Although not, I'm not saying she moved forward frequently, but I'm saying if it was an undeniable short ball, she's there. She was making that choice, and for a 15-year-old, that's the sort of progression you want to see. And, you know, again, what does she have left in the tank? That's a fascinating question. But to say this success came out of nowhere, you're not paying close enough attention. ITF-level success does translate. Again, I mentioned in her last 52, she's 18-8. and eight. In her career now, 22-12. and 12. But 21, uh, in 2021 specifically, she's 14-2. and two. In the matches she's played, you know, I, I mentioned it at the top, and now she's the highest-ranked player in the world under the age of, uh, you know, uh, of 18, or excuse me, highest player in the world under the age of 16. She's up to number 414 now, new career high. She's going to get to start playing 25Ks, 60Ks with her ranking. Certainly, she'll get a bunch of wild cards into events, and she deserves it because she is another one of those promising young talents, can do a little bit of everything, you know, again, Cornet's kind of a good matchup because she doesn't have that overwhelming weapon to hit Fruvertova off the court. You know, Fruvertova always going to be down for playing physical tennis, and that's what she showed off. And I was so impressed by the 15-year-old. Such a high ups, you know, such a bright future for her. The it's going to be very exciting to see. And again, to see the it, her have ITF level success at both the junior and pro levels prior to this win in Char, uh, in Charleston speaks to the fact this is not a one-off performance. We should all expect more of this from Fruvertova moving forward throughout her career. That's just one of the next Next Gen winners. I talked about her at length, given her title last week in Bogota. But uh, Maria Osorio Serrano continues her successful run through this 2021 season. She earns a three-set win over number two seed Magda Lynette, 6-3-4-6-7-5, to advance to the next round in Charleston for Osorio Serrano. Uh, for yeah, Maria Osorio Serrano. Excuse me. Another dare I say, breakfast sort of match. She was 8 of 11 on her breakpoint chances. She, you know, versus uh, for uh, Magdalenette, who was 7 of 16 and like 8 trumps 7. Sometimes it's that simple. Now, for Osorio Serrano, whenever she hit a second serve and was forced to be on her back foot, uh, that's when things got tough today. She was only 9 of 27 on second serve points. That's not going to be good enough moving forward in her career, but guess what? She held uh, she held Lynette to 14 of 35 on Lynette's second serve points, and you look for uh, Osorio Serrano. She made 72% of her first serves versus 
the 63% that Lynette made. She was able to find first serves when she needed them the most, and ultimately that helped her get over the hump. And I talked about this so much Sunday, so I apologize if I repeat myself here, but the forehand's a weapon. I mean, her ability to not just hit through the ball, but her ability to change shapes with that shot, to elevate it, you know, 30 feet in the parabola form over the net and be defensive with that ball while also being able to take it early, drive it down the line, drive it cross court, drive it short angle. She can do all of the things on that wing. And then I really like her backhand, the ability to slice. I think she's plenty comfortable hitting through it as well. And the diversity with which she plays, with the variety she plays with on that wing, it allows her, uh, or it keeps her opponents off balance. And it just allows her to do different things. I've talked about it before. I love the north-south speed. I think the lateral speed for her movement-wise is only going to get better. This was a well-deserved win. I mean, she was the better player in this match from start to finish. Magdalena had a ton of chances, but Osorio Serrano is a scrapper, and she's got confidence right now. And so, again, she earns another big victory, 25-12 and 12 in her last 52 weeks. Now 62-27 and 27 in her career on clay versus 33-20 and 20 on hard courts. Uh, she wins 2.6% higher percentage of her return points, 47.7% versus 45.1% on hard courts. That does is because she has that extra split second to run around the ball, hit the big forehand return, and again, another name to put on your list. She's top 150 in the world for a reason. She advances to the next round in Charleston. Another former junior uh, slam champion, Claire Lou, former junior French Open champion, who Unfortunately, I don't want to say forgotten because that's too harsh, but, you know, with the Goffs, the Kennens, the Anisimovas of the world, uh, it's hard to remember, uh, you know, Claire, it, it's hard to keep track of Claire Lou's progress. She's hovered around that top 200 of the WTA rankings for about the past two, three seasons, currently number 189. That's, you know, about uh, 52 spots off our career high. It's not about, it is 52 spots off our career high of number 137, which she has achieved at the start of 2019, but Clay court season is Claire Lou's season. You look in her career, she is 43-22 and 22 in clay court matches. That's a 66% win percentage versus 59-62 and 62 in hard court matches. 49% win percentages. Her first serve is more effective. Second serve is more effective. She wins uh, more of her return points. You want to look uh, WTA tour level specifically. She's 12-23 and 23 in her hard court matches. 11-4. and four. In her clay court matches, and the best part for Claire Liu, she comes into this clay court season with some confidence. 21-11 and 11 overall in her last 52. She went and played a couple of 25Ks in Orlando, Boca, and Newport Beach, where she made semifinals, fi- uh, finals, and finals in her three events. And confidence is the thing that's been missing for Claire Liu because you look for her since reaching that career high of 137 in 2019. She went 20-3 and and 23 that season. She went 16-10 and last year. But, of course, things got cut off by the pandemic. And now, you know, finding her stride. And she's still only 20 years old. Doesn't turn 21 until the end of May. Look for Claire Liu to make a big breakthrough. If the opportunities come for her to play high-level events, I think she's going to get some big wins here over the next few months. Great victory for her. Three sets over Storm Sanders, the lefty, seven five four six six. 6 love uh, Just, you know, la- lasted her out physically. One over 
50% of both her first and second serves, held Sanders to 12 of 36 on the Sanders second serve, you know, faced 17 break points, but fought off 11 of them, converted nine of her 15 break point chances. I, I just like the way Claire Ball moves the ball around the court, I uh, particularly on a clay court. I love the pace of her ball as well, the heaviness of it on this surface. Uh, she's one to watch now, certainly, of course, you look in the draw for Claire Lou things, uh, you know, only going to get tougher from here. She knocks off Sanders in round number one in the round of 16. Now she's going to face Shelby Rogers, the test of all tests, but... I'm fascinated to watch that one. You look actually for Claire Lou in her career. Has she played Shelby Rogers yet? No, this is the fur on clay. No, she has not played Shelby Rogers yet on clay. But Claire Lou has beaten Paula Bedosa Jaber, Danielle Collins, Sonia Kennan, uh, all on clay early in her career. Magda Lynette, that was back 2017, 2018. Danka Kavinic, she beat uh, on clay. So she's gotten big wins before in her career. And again, she comes into this with the thing that's most important of all. She comes in with confidence. Confidence. Very much looking forward to that matchup against Rodgers in the round of 16. In terms of your other winners on the day, uh, you know, there were a couple of three-set battles. Or I, I think actually those were your three-set battles. Corn- uh, Fruvertova, uh, excuse me, Fruvertova, Osorio Serrano, and Claire Lou. You had straight-set winners across the board elsewhere. Last week's finalist, Danka Kavinich. Three and three win over Tomova. Own Jabour, semifinalist, four and one victory over Vogel to kick off her campaign. You also had straight set wins from Mikhail Di Lorenzo Parks and Emma Navarro. 6332 retirement from Martin Sova, but certainly for the home crowd, that's going to make everyone happy. Those were your round of 32 matches. Fantastic day of tennis in terms of what we've got on tap tomorrow. Davis Kavinich going to be one of your single. It's uh, only four of your round of 16 matches. So it's Davis Kavinich, Rogers Liu, Tomjanovic Tossin. That's a spicy one. And then DiLorenzo Hibino. All great matches. You know, physical tennis to start. That's going to be a grind between Kavinich and Davis, uh, the shot making the jour in the middle too, and then DiLorenzo Hibino, certain to be exciting. So again, those are your two ATP and WTA level events in Monte Carlo and Charleston, respectively. I should say, by the way, I'm on press row in Charleston, and unfortunately, we had a bunch of things going on in uh, across the Crack Rackets world this week. We're getting ready for our red zone coverage this weekend of USC UCLA on Friday, Michigan Ohio State on Sunday. I'm also doing some cool stuff. We will be able to announce in the future here at Crack Rackets, but I also get to serve on press row this weekend. You know, I talk about Claire Lou having success on the clay courts in her career. I got the chance to ask Claire Lou a couple of questions following her victory today about, you know, why she made the decision to go play ITF uh, 25K level events about her thoughts and transition here to the green clay and why it might be a a surface she's had the most success on in her career. We've got the audio from that press conference. So without further ado, Westoff, roll the tape. Claire, congratulations on the victory today. Uh, I'm curious for you, you played a bunch of 25Ks last month, and you hadn't played at the 25K level in quite a bit of time. What led to you to make that decision to go play those events? Um, I mean, it was a pretty easy decision. There, were, there wasn't really anything else to play. Like, um, everything else was in, I think, like Australia or something. So, like, and I mean, I didn't qualify for Australian Open, so I wasn't able to go. And that was pretty much the only thing in the U.S. So that was why I played it. 
Mm-hmm. And the wins you got there, just building that confidence early in the season, uh, how has that helped you here this week? I know you came through qualifying as well. Yeah, it's been really helpful. That was pretty much my goal going into those 25s because um, I know like three tournaments back-to-back, it's really tough. Um, but yeah, I was just trying to get as many matches as possible. So like when the summer started, I was um, as prepared as I could be. And for you, I know uh, you are a former junior French Open champion, and clay is something you have had success on in the past. How does the green clay you're playing on here in Charleston differ to the red stuff in the past, and your thoughts on the surface in general? Um, I mean, honestly, like, I grew up on green clay. Like, I trained at the USTA Training Center at Carson. They have green clay there, so I pretty much grew up um on green clay I didn't play much on red clay until I went to Europe in the juniors um but yeah I mean it is a little bit different I think every tournament every court is different anyway so I'm just like no matter if it you know if it's hard or clay or grass like every every um venue is different so it's not really like a big thing for me to like deal with like green or red like I think I'm just trying to prepare for like each match but um yeah, I mean, it definitely helped growing up on clay, and I definitely feel comfortable. I mean, this is my first clay tournament, so I'm just trying to build um, as many matches going into um, French Open and Europe. Mm-hmm. No, evidently it's working. And just my last question again on this clay particular. It feels a little skittish, right? These balls are uh, skidding through the court, and it does feel a little bit faster. Has that been your impression as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, it's definitely been a little bit faster. I haven't played on clay in in a little bit, you know, with COVID and everything. So it it had, it was definitely a little bit of an adjustment, but um, yeah, as you know, as the matches go on, I'm definitely just trying to get used to it and trying to move as well as possible. Well, congratulations today on a fantastic win. So that's the recap of the action in Charleston. Want to quickly run through what we've seen at the ATP Challenger level. And again, we're saving the full breakdown for when David Gertler joins me on the Great Shot Podcast. We're recording that Wednesday morning. Uh, That podcast is going to eventually get to all of you, uh, I suppose, on Thursday. Uh, But, you know, the action has delivered the goods thus far. And in Orlando, we've already seen two of our top four seeds and four of our top eight seeds knocked out of the main draw. Of course, it's always great to have the Orlando Airport Challenger back, to have air traffic controller Mike Cation on the ones and twos. Excuse me, I hiccup through that joke like the airplanes roar through the 7-6 tie breaks uh, because that's half the fun of these events. you got to poke fun, got to enjoy the background noise, but the level of tennis has been delightful. And these courts in Orlando are playing particularly fast here this week, and you know, that scene, a couple of big servers have success. Chris Eubanks just hits through Steve Johnson, played big tennis in his 6-1-7-6 victory. Now, Eubanks had a couple of breaks go exactly his way at the end of that match. Four all, 30 all, hits a big inside, uh, in, uh, you know, steps in on a deuce side return, hits a cross-court return winner, 4-30-40, then steps up, hits a backhand return, hits the net tape, trickles over to give him the break for 5-4. Thankfully, there are tennis gods, and Steve Johnson buckles in, gets the break back, 4-5 all, but then Eubanks gets another net cord return for a mini 
break in the tiebreaker, holds on from there, but he was so effective on the first serve in his match. And, you know, if these courts are playing quick, Chris Eubanks wins 76% of his first serve, fights off four of the six break points he faced. He's just going to be a tough out because he plays big. He plays on his terms. I also think he's gotten more and more fluid as a mover. That backhand side's become, you know, much more consistent as a return and then just more consistent and more effective within rallies. Hit a couple of really effective slices as well. He was the better player. Like, it wasn't like, you know, Steve Johnson wasn't at his best. His second serve was sitting up there to be attacked, but that was a really nice performance from Chris Eubanks to pull off the upset. In terms of the other top four seed upset, with all due respect to Christian Harrison, who gets another big win following up his strong performance in Delray Beach to start the year, this match was on Mackey's racket. I counted 16 different times. He had shots to finish the rally, and that shot hit the net tape and then fell back on his side of the court. And I'm not making excuses. Like, Mackey's got to make that ball. But Mackey had so many chances. I think they're in the second set, two all. He had like six break points. Christian Harrison fights them off, then breaks Mackey in the next game. And just Mackey kind of lost the thread from there. But, you know, credit to Christian Harrison, who, like all Harrisons, they scrap, they claw. They're incredibly athletic, and they're able to produce some really outstanding kick on their serves. But, oh my, like, Mackey had—he must have missed— I mean, so many forehands in the net, but I swear to God, like text Mike Cation, tweet at Mike Cation, say, hey, at Mike Cation, at Great Shot Pod claims that Mackie McDonald missed 24 approach shots in the net in his match against Christian Harrison. Is he over or under in terms of that number? I think Mike might say under. Like, Mackie had so many chances. And so why I say that is, don't be concerned. He was right there. It's just the, sometimes the balls don't roll your way. It was one of those days. But credit to Christian Harrison, who put all of the pressure in the world on Mackie McDonald, made him or make him earn it. And Mackie just unfortunately wasn't able to do it. Uh, you know, in terms of the other matches, were they upsets? I would say no. Brooksby won in four over Jason Jung. Jensen Brooksby won a challenger title earlier this year, made the final in Cleveland. He is now on outdoor hard courts. Uh, if you don't have a big weapon, you're not going to beat him. And I don't know if Jung has a big enough weapon to beat him, and Brooksby just Brooksby him to death. And so it's real deal, folks. It's not the prettiest in the world, but it is damn effective. Jensen is coming. So uh, big win for him. Big win for Braden Schnur as well, who on quick courts is going to thrive. He gets a 2-2 two and two win over Alejandro Tabilo. Your other seeds who played on the day, Tiago Sabathville, Dennis Kudla, Pranesh Gunaswaran, all advancing in straight sets. You also had straight sets. Wins from Eltug Chelik Bellic over Ty Kwiatkowski, Roberto Sid over Torp. Uh, you know, Ty and Torp continuing to struggle here earlier in the season, so hopefully those guys can find their rhythm here early. Tim Van Ruchevin, uh, the 23 year old from the Netherlands, 6'4, 6'5, big server, looked untouchable. I think he won like 90% of his first serve points against Mitchell Kruger today. Three and four victory for him. One and one victory for Jack Sock, who I'm telling you folks, he's coming. He looks damn good. He looks fit, and he looks locked in. One and one victory for him over Watanuki to kick off his campaign. In terms of the three set victories, big win for Michael Moe over Martin Dam. 6-4, Dam, the 18-year-old American, 17, maybe big servant lefty, 6-5, 6-6, but Moe made the match physical, and, you know, Dam's played a lot of tennis coming through qualifying, just didn't have enough tank left in, uh, gas in the tank, was cramping down the home stretch, but that's a credit to Moe, who, again, made enough of those returns, made enough of those second 
balls to put pressure on Dam. Big win for him. Good win for Uchiyama. Three sets over Polanski. Ditto for Bjorn. For Tangelo, three sets over Emilio Gomez. Two guys who made the semifinals or better in Cleveland. For Tangelo, obviously the champ there. Uh, but that was a physical match. Zane Khan, the young American Watch him play for 10 seconds. You're going to be like, how hard can this guy hit the ball? The question is still unknown, but he gets a good three-set win over Kevin King. He is someone who was a highly touted junior throughout his uh, rise in American junior tennis and uh, a guy who I think can certainly make some noise on the pro tour. And then last but not least, got to give a shout out to my guy, Alexander Kovacevic. Really should have won his match against Roberto Quiroz in straight sets today, but ultimately 6-1-5-7-6-4. The forehand special... His slice serve out wide on the deuce side today to expose the lefty backhand of Kiroz was particularly effective. And then if you give him open space on the forehand wing, he's going to attack. He's going to move forward. His backhand is extraordinarily fluid, and sometimes he gets a little bit passive with it, but when he's swinging through the ball, it looks really good. I mean, he's just a, a quality athlete as well. Is he an elite of the elite movers? No, but movement's never going to be a problem from him. Does he have elite size? No, but power's never going to be a problem from him. He might be the best player in the nation right now in terms of college tennis, um, but great performance from him to get the victory over Kiros to advance to the round of 16. And it's going to be a really fun day of matches tomorrow. You've got Fertangelo Schnur, you've got Brooksby, Chelik Bellick, Sabeth Vild versus Roberto Sid, and then you've also got Zane Khan against Uchiyama plus a bunch of doubles action. That's your Orlando Challenger uh, results in terms of the action we've got uh, elsewhere at the Challenger events. I don't want to just stay American-centric. I feel like that would be a little bit rude. So in terms of what we have going on in Croatia, uh, Zdenek Kolar continues his success, won a title two weeks ago. Uh, He gets a straight set win over number two seed Mark Pullman's Nino Serdarusic, three and four upset victory over number five seed Kimmer Kopenhans. In fact, in Croatia, four of the top eight seeds knocked out in the round of 32. Polman, Safwat, Kopenhans, and Diaz all knocked off. You also had victories from Tanasi Kokonakis, uh, Alexander Vukic, Dominguez, Chem Ickel, Elias Emer, Maximilian Martyr, Philip Peransky, Matthias Borg, Hugo Gaston, and Kasper Zuk. The 21-year-old, 22-year-old now, excuse me, young Polish player up to number 212 entering the week with his victories here. Kasper Zuk now up to a new career high, number 202 in the live rankings. You look for Zuk, 37-9. In his last 52 weeks, he's now 20 and 15 for his career at the challenger level, but 14 and 5 in 2021. That includes runs to quarterfinals in Quimper, in Chimburg, in Nur Sultan. He also made the final in St. Petersburg semifinals last week in Croatia. He's made the quarterfinals or better in every challenger he's played here in 2021. That's the definition of a guy on the rise, folks. And again, uh, his game translates across surface. He's athletic. He takes balls early. Reminds me of Tommy Paul. I've said that before. I'll say it again. Uh, But he earns a big win here to kick off his campaign. 
four and six over Lucas Rosal in terms of the matches tomorrow. You've got Kokonakis, Horansky, Masur, Halise. By the way, Kokonakis has been very sneaky good at challengers these past two weeks. We'll talk about him more with David. Serta Rusic versus Emer and Kolarini versus Giastino. Those are your singles matches in Croatia. In terms of the action in Serbia, Nakashima gets a big win on clay. He knocks off Ben Shatri. Uh, Bagnus, Kohlschreiber, Daniel, and Delian all seeds that advanced on the day. Your that were upset. Sebastian Ofner, three-set win over Daniel Galan. That was a very fun match. I'll save for David. We also had Kovalek, straight-set wins over Surindolo. Liam Brody knocked off an inform Nikola Miljevic. That was a fun one. Zemir Zumhersh, three-set win over Kristen. Gale with a straight-set win over Donskoy and Medjevic, a three-set win over Oscar Ota. In terms of your action tomorrow, you've got Trungalidi versus Petrovic. You've got Medjevic versus Versus Bagnus, you've got Zoomher versus Cole Schreiber, uh, Nakashima Delian, Gale versus Kovalik, and then Carbeas Benio, your number one seed, kicking off his campaign against Arthur Rinderneck. So it should be a fun day of action across the board at the ATP Challenger level. So it should be a fun day of action across the board at the ATP Challenger level. Hey, Cracked fans. As winter slowly turns into spring and all of us look forward to getting back on the outdoor tennis courts, we here at Crack Rackets want to ensure that you listeners have everything you need to make sure your return to outdoor tennis is a successful one. That's where our friends at Gamma Sports come in. Now, if you need new strings, new grips, new court equipment, ball hoppers, machine tools, and accessories, whatever it may be, our friends at Gamma have it all for you. They've also, of course, got dampeners, over grips, replacement grips, they've got it all. And if you go to their website, gammasports.com slash tennis right now, you use our promo code CRACK20, you'll get 20% off your order. Now, I know Gamma has a new string pattern in the queue called the React Pro, which all of you Gamma string users will enjoy. And even if you're not using Gamma strings, maybe now's the time to start, but they've also got polyesters, everything you could be looking for from a tennis equipment standpoint, all in one location. Just go to gammasports.com slash tennis right now. Use that promo code CRACK20 to get 20% off your order. Again, gammasports.com slash tennis. Use that promo code CRACK20 to get 20% off your order. All right, now that we've talked through all of Tuesday's results, I want to touch on some of the other non-tennis things happening uh, across the globe on Tuesday, across the tennis world now. There was a lot of dunking on media members, on everyone involved in the Hoobie Hercats press experience. I believe we have the clip available, so Westoff, roll that clip now for our listeners. Maybe a couple of questions in English, and then we'll switch to Polish. Who wants to start? Please raise your hand. Any questions in English? No. Okay, we'll switch to Polish. Any questions? No. <laughs> I mean, you were requested. <laughs> no question. That's okay. nice. Nice press no conference. Okay. okay. Okay, thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. 
so essentially what happened is Hubie Hercats was made available for a press conference today, and no journalist showed up for the press conference, or at least no journalist had questions for Hubie. The moderator offered questions in English, in Polish. No one took the bait, and so the press conference was over, and Hubie left. And for some reason, Tennis TV found this humorous, and they decided to tweet out the tweet. And look— It's an innocent tweet. I always feel bad ripping on social media directors because they have a lot of pressure on their jobs. And look, this tweet certainly generated a lot of conversation. There's a reason Tennis TV hasn't deleted it. Uh, But just a really bad look for everyone involved, in particular from my perspective and for some of you listeners who don't know how this press process works. uh, You know, the ATP and WTA, you can eventually join the long cast of you're on the yearly group and they just enter you into every subscription. But that's a really hard list to enter where you're uh, afforded press credentials at each and every event. Generally, you need a New York Times, a tennis channel, an ESPN behind you to be granted that sort of access where it's just carte blanche acceptance into every event. And generally, you have to apply event by event for credentials. And I will say the WTA has been exceptional. Anytime I've applied for a credential, at a minimum, I've gotten a response. 99% of the time, I've been approved for events. The only time you're not is when it's a Grand Slam because obviously Grand Slams control the media in those instances. But for the tennis TV to tweet this out, there was a lot of dunking on media members. Oh, look, the media, this is the quality of tennis journalism. These media members don't have questions anyways. If I was a media member, I would have asked a, a three-part narrative, and we would have done 35 minutes, and it would have been its own podcast. And, like, respectfully, I know I shouldn't say it in a mocking tone, but the reason I bring it up here is that's just such an uninformed take on what happened today because, truthfully— This is once again an indictment of the ATP Tour and how they run their press credentials. And let me just say, from experience, having applied for credentials at every ATP event this year, I've received one response. Not, you know, multiple rejections. I've received one response total from – from communications events at various tournaments at various ATP entities. The only response I got was from Australia, which was just a firm no. Other than that, haven't heard a word from anyone at the ATP Tour at any of these events. And it's like, with all due respect, I'm not trying to boost up my own ego, but I host daily podcasts covering the tour. I don't know what sort of criteria someone needs to have to be afforded press access, but I imagine I meet that criteria, that I've got the resume, the intent, and in my opinion, the skill set to be a successful member of an ATP tour press conference, and yet I've received no response. And there are many like me, you know, in similar positions who also don't receive access to these press conferences. And that's why, respectfully, coverage of this sport is how it is, because There are people who are looking to cover events, and I will say this for the people who receive press coverage, I know how it works. Everyone's in a WhatsApp group, and (coughs) excuse me, whenever I get a rant, I get a cough, but there's WhatsApp groups that they're set up for the media teams, and they'll message you whenever someone's about to come out to the press, and they'll say, you know, use a blank name, Kasparud coming in 35 minutes, or Kasparud coming in 15 minutes. At a minimum, usually, you have a 10-minute heads up. There was a 30-second heads-up today in the WhatsApp. It says, Hubert Hercat's walking in now, and then it's, you know, Hubert Hercat's press conference over. 
And I'm not in that WhatsApp group in Monte Carlo because I didn't receive press access this week. But I saw the messages, and it's like if you expect any journalist because what you have to do (coughs) – excuse me – is pull up the Zoom, you know, sign into the Zoom, be accepted into the Zoom, tell the moderator you have a question in the Zoom, and then hope that the moderator notices it in time before the press conference ends. And you can't do that in 35 seconds. And so, you know, yes, ideally you would think someone would be on standby and be ready to do it within 45 seconds and be logged into the Zoom, be logged into the Zoom within a two-minute time frame. The moderator can show a little patience. Everyone can show a little patience. But that's not what happened. And the fact that this event was amplified, again, it speaks to some of the things that are wrong uh, within the tennis world. I'm sorry I'm leaving in the coughing. I'll make a note. If Westhoff ended up leaving in the coughing, I apologize for that. Hopefully he took that out. If he didn't, just so you all know, I ended up coughing um, a little bit. But with that in mind, I just wanted to share that take on the Hercats incident because – Don't dunk on journalists just because it's easy. I hate when people just attack the straw man of the media. There are countless media members who do hard work, countless media members who have so much talent in the tennis industry who, because of certain parameters within tennis, aren't able to show that work. And, you know, even then, uh, you may not like a question to which I say start a podcast, start covering it, write a blog, do your thing. If you think you could be better at the media than current members are, do it. That's what we did here at Crack Rackets, and you know, hopefully, uh, we're we're having some success with that. So, I just say it's always easy to dunk on people. Don't take the free shot. You know, know some. Try and take the time to learn some facts. So, I wanted to provide those facts for all of you listeners. With that in mind, again, just some of the other things to run through quickly. Very excited for a first time ATP 250 to be held in Parma. From May 22nd to May 29th, obviously that event emerges given the changing of the calendar for the French Open. We also had the announcement, or I suppose the confirmation, of the new WTA Tour event happening in Cleveland the week after the Western Southern Open. Our friends at Top Notch Management hosting that event. Super excited to see all that that becomes, and hopefully our Crack Records team going to be able to be involved in that event. So more to come on that later on. Also want to just quickly add to something on Wednesday you're going to hear on our Great Shot podcast, our College Tennis Weekly Recap. We didn't address this then. I want to just quickly note now, and this story had been unconfirmed, but we were pretty about sure of it. Now we have it confirmed. Chris tweeted it out late last night. The Pac-12 Conference Tournament will run as an eight-team compass draw where all teams will play three matches. It's a chance to give teams more matches, hopefully significantly help those teams on the NCAA bubble. That's the sort of creativity the sort of flexibility you have to show amidst a pandemic. So credit to the Pac-12, to those coaches for getting those matches in. Also want to credit Jeff Sackman, who we had on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he mentioned the fact uh, that, um, excuse me, he mentioned the fact that, or we were talking about Maria Sakari's improvement on her first serve win percentage over the course of the past five years. That number has steadily improved uh, in each and every one of the seasons. And I asked him, is there a way to easily find other players who have had similar trends? And instead of showing me that way, he wrote an entire blog post on the topic. So you can find that on my Twitter account or on tennisabstract.com. Last but not least, 
a fun, quick stat for all of you, and we're at the hour mark of this podcast, which I did not anticipate, so I'm going to leave this stat brief. Just tease it for all of you listeners. I'll go in-depth on it later. Fun fact about Iga Shviantek, who, you know, did she have the sort of slam success that would have led anyone to believe her French Open breakthrough that happened last fall was coming? No, certainly not. But... Iga Sviantek made quarterfinals or better at the Junior French Open in three consecutive seasons from 2016 to 2018. In her junior career, she was 47-13 and 13 in the clay court events she faced. You also look for her career. For her career, she's also 17-4 in clay court matches at the WTA level versus 36-17 in, in hard court matches. Of course, that is skewed by the big French Open run, but you look even broader beyond the WTA level matches. She's 54-11 in her career on clay courts versus 55-21 on hard courts. Now, she's winning over 70% of her matches on both of the surfaces. That's freaking nuts for someone who has yet to turn 20 years old, but... You know, again, the additional half second afforded to you on the return of serve on clay has allowed her to win over 5% more of her return points on the surface. You know, her funky forehand uh, grip and big forehand backswing is less exposed. She doesn't have to slice the forehand return as frequently when she's playing on clay court matches. Uh, You look for her via tennis abstracts. Clay ELO ratings, which again measures who you're playing, not when or where. For Clay Court specifically, she's the number two player rated by ELO ratings. Again, how much does the French Open factor into that? A lot. But I'm just saying, this success came out of nowhere. The fun fact, Iga Sviantek, three straight junior French Open women uh, girls singles quarterfinals from 2016 to 2018. That's today's podcast. I know we covered a lot there, but it was an action-packed Tuesday. Hopefully, all of you listeners were able to follow along with all of the action. If you missed out on any of this week's play, you want to hear more about the biggest storylines heading into the week in Monte Carlo and Charleston, you can catch up on everything on our website, CrackedRackets.com. You need the more immediate updates. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at CrackedRackets. You want to message me directly, I am at GreatShotPod. Shout out, as always, to our super producers. Max Fligner and Daniel Westhoff for the of an any job they do day in day out shout out as well to our friends at Midwest Sports go to MidwestSports.com use that promo code CR15 to get 15% off your order with that in mind I can't believe I just went over an hour solo. I apologize for that. Maybe some of you listeners enjoyed it. If it was too much, please just let me know. Again, the DMs at Great Shot Pod. If you don't mind when I go this long, also let me know as well. So I'm always looking for feedback from you listeners. There's a lot happening in the tennis world, and I'm going to have these conversations anyways. I figure I might as well just hit record on the microphone so that we can share them with the broader tennis community. But with that in mind, for the super producers, Fligner and Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports, and all of us here, at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.